The New Testament lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, beginning with the first verse. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way and behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack or sandals and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house, whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. And heal the sick there, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Sidon and Tyre at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. This morning, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. So that we can become re-engaged with immediately where we are right now. Uh, and uh, if you are visiting this morning and uh, have no record of where we begin, it's, it's very easy. Uh, we've been in a study in the gospel according to Luke for over a year. Uh, the first part of Luke up to chapter 9, the early part or the first part of Jesus' ministry, uh, was about his identity. Who am I? Every miracle was about his identity. His teaching was about his identity. And then the disciples in chapter 9 were given a midterm exam. Who do you say that I am? And they confessed. They understood. They understood his teaching. They saw the miracles that no man could do. And they said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And once they said, we know who you are, his ministry completely changed. He began to speak to them for the first time about his mission. In those first nine chapters, in those first eight chapters, he never mentioned his mission. What he had come to do. As soon, and I mean as soon, five minutes after they said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He began to talk about his mission, how he must go to Jerusalem, how he must be crucified. They were astounded. 
This message was outside of their frame of references. Messiahs don't die on crosses. And from then on, he began to speak of two things. The immensity of his mission and the immensity, we saw this last week, the immensity of their mission. When they questioned his mission, Lord, you can't go die on a cross. He said, well, let me put it to you this way. If you would follow me, you must take up your cross. He said, it's not only that my mission involves a cross, your mission involves a cross. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, come and die and follow me. Your mission will be inextricably entwined with my mission. And so it's understandable then that as he began to speak about his mission, and that's what chapter 9 was about, that's what chapter 10 is about. It's about discipleship. It's about following him, what that discipleship involves. And he's sending out this morning, we read a passage where he's sending out 72 of his disciples out into uh, the land around them, in fact, the cities around them, where he would be headed to prepare for his coming to them. That's where we are. Let's pray together and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, we're a room full of priests this morning. Not only prophets bringing God's word to Fayette County, but we together are priests. We meet, we speak to you individually during the week as a priest, bringing the world around you, bringing our families to you, bringing the world around us to you. And now, Father, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with fellow priests, this is the one opportunity that we have to bow together and pray and lift up people before you. And this morning, Father, we lift up Priscilla Turner. We thank you for how for years you have preserved her. And, and how you have blessed her, even, uh, Father, uh, with uh, this cancer. Our Father, we pray that you would bring healing. We pray that you would bring strength to her body, healing. But we pray most of all that you would draw her close to you. Her testimony has been incredible, Father, in these days, and we pray that 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 you would give her, continue to give her that stalwart, stalwart, stalwart spirit in Christ. Fill her with your spirit that that testimony would continue and draw her close to you. Our Father, we pray for Billy Griggs and Jim Bennington that you would give them strength for these days. Bless Janet Sartell. Bless this week, Father. We pray that as she has this scan, that we will receive good news, that these treatments will have accomplished their purpose. But, Father, most of all, we pray that you would draw Janet close to you. Father, give her, by the power of your Spirit, that indomitable, trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Draw her close. Our Father, thank you for how in these days as uh, colds and flu uh, have uh, struck many homes in our congregation. 
Thank you for bringing healing. Thank you for how you brought healing this week uh, to Buckley Garden. We thank you for her little life and thank you for preserving her. Now, as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Father, every week we say it and we will continue to say it. John Sartell cannot teach, cannot preach so that it will make any difference in our lives. And so we pray in these next few minutes that we would hear your voice, that you would teach, change us, Father, from the inside out. Maybe some of us for the first time, for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. How do lambs hunt wolves? One must ask what Jesus was doing when he sent these disciples out. Remember, early in chapter 9, he had already sent just 12, the original 12, with a similar mission. That's in Luke 9. But Luke actually gives more detail in the sending out of these 72. Why these training missions? Well, it makes sense. In just a few months, within a year of that time, within a year of what's happening, of within a year of the sending out of the 72, there would be a crucifixion, there would be a resurrection, there would be an ascension. After that, there would be Pentecost, and then it wouldn't be a training mission anymore. These same people would be engaged in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire Roman Empire. So it makes sense that Jesus would send them out in these missions of training. But why 72? Why not 50? Why not 24? Why not 65? I believe that number is symbolic and also prophetic. Jesus meant to this for this to be prophetic about the gospel going to the nations. Now, right then, it was just going to these towns in Samaria and Judea. But 72 was symbolic of the nations of the entire world. In Genesis 10 and 11, the tribes and nations of the world are listed. And depending on how you count them, there's either a list of 70 or 72. So in sending out these 72, Jesus was actually saying there'll be a day that you'll go to the nations, all the nations of the world, to the ends of the earth. As Jesus sent them forth, his charge was filled with a strange foreboding, with a disturbing warning. Go, I send you out as lambs among wolves. People, there are few sentences in the entire Bible that are more graphic than that. What sheep herder would open the door of a barn and turn his sheep loose into a field full of wolves? That is exactly what Jesus said he was doing. Go, I send you as lambs 
among wolves. He was saying to the 72, don't expect the world to cheer your coming. Don't expect the world to eagerly receive the news of your faith. In fact, you can expect hostility. Jesus was saying, don't be naive, disciples, about the world. That's our first point. How do lambs hunt wolves? Well, first, you can't be naive about the world. In the next few verses, Jesus answered the question, how do you take my message? Next week, we're going to talk about the message itself from this same passage. But he was saying, how do you take the message? What's it look like? How do you take the message of the gospel to a hostile world? How do you as lambs hunt wolves? Now, some Christians do not take this seriously. In fact, probably most of us here do not take this seriously. They, we think this is some kind of hyperbole by Jesus. Well, if that's the way you think, let's quickly peruse the book of Acts. The church, you know, when we're talking about those 70 going on, we're talking 72 going out, we're talking about the disciples then going out for real after Pentecost. The church broke out on the world in chapters 2 and 3 in Acts. By chapter 4, Peter and John, who were standing there that day, that Jesus said this. Peter and John were arrested for preaching in the temple. They were told to desist by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. In chapter 5, the apostles were arrested again and put in jail. They were freed miraculously by an angel. They were arrested again and threatened with death if they did not stop. In chapter 6, the first deacon, Stephen, was was, was arrested. In chapter 7, he was killed. And there at his death, the first Christian martyr, we read in Acts 1, it's on your scripture sheet. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Do you see that? On that day, just a few months after the ascension, a great persecution broke out in the middle of Jerusalem against this fledgling church. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So he's here's the wolf. Here's the wolf. And what happens? God changed him to a lamb. He was converted in Damascus. And what happened? The hunter had become the hunted. He had to flee Damascus because what? He had done one thing. He started preaching the gospel. They had to let him over a wall in the basket or he would have been arrested and killed. Later, he went to Jerusalem. The same thing happened. He had to flee Jerusalem for his life. In chapter 12, Herod killed the brother of John. He killed James, one of the sons of thunder. He put Peter in jail with the intention of killing him. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas ran into opposition at Cyprus. They arrived in Pisidia and Antioch and had to flee for their lives. In chapter 14, Paul is stoned in Lystra and left for dead. I could keep going. There's no need to. Do you get the message? 
I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't be naive. Remember the names? Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Hadrian, Antonius Pius, Marcus Aurelius, Severius, Decius, Valerian, Diocletian. What did they all have in common? Roman emperors, what else did they have in common? They persecuted the church. Some more overtly, some more covertly. But for 300 years, that continued. Some of us would say, well, John, this is the 21st century. That was in the first, second, and third centuries. We don't see the same persecutions today in our modern world. If that's what you're thinking, you are so naive and uninformed. For there were more in, in the great civilized 20th century, there were more Christians killed in the 20th century than in those first 300 years. Do you understand that? That's history. It hadn't changed. In 1996, pick a year, 1996, 438 Christians were killed every day for their faith. The reality is that in the 20th century, Christians were killed for their faith, were slain for their faith in huge numbers in Russia, in Germany, in China, in Uganda, in Kenya, in the Sudan, in India, in Pakistan, in Vietnam, in North Korea, in the Middle East. In the last 40 years, hundreds of thousands of Christians have been slain in the Sudan alone. You want to hear something humorous? In 1997, Michael Horowitz, a brilliant lawyer and writer, was named as the one of the most influential Christians in the world by a Southern Baptist magazine. Why was that ironic? Because Horowitz is not a Christian. He's named one of the ten most well-known Christians. He's Jewish. Why did they bestow that honor upon him? Because he has written and spoken prolifically about the worldwide persecution, not of Jews, but of Christians. He has been on a campaign trying to wake up the Christian church to what is happening. Jeff Jacoby is a well-known journalist and columnist with the Boston Globe. He, like Horowitz, is Jewish. He wrote in the Boston Globe, quote, For millions of Christians in other lands, fear is ever-present. Never before, now listen, never before, never before, he repeats, have so many believers in Jesus been persecuted for their Faith. He wrote that recently in the Boston Globe. 9 Shea is director of the Christian of the excuse me, director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute. 
This is what she wrote. Millions of American Christians pray in their churches each week, oblivious to the fact that Christians and in many parts of the world suffer brutal torture, arrest, imprisonment, and even death. Their homes and communities are laid waste for no other reason than that they are Christians. The shocking untold story of our time is that more Christians have died in this century. She wrote that just a few years ago when we were still in the 20th century. More Christians have died in this century simply for being Christians than in the past 19 centuries after the birth of Christ. They have been persecuted and martyred before an unknowing, indifferent world and a largely silent Christian community. You still think that the words of Jesus don't apply to us anymore? I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. If you think that way, shame on you. For you're not believing what Christ said. And you're blinded to what's happening in our world. Well, John, we live in this country. Let's take this country. Certainly Jesus' words are not applicable here. Do you really think that the classrooms of the University of Tennessee, the classrooms of Vanderbilt, the classrooms of UCLA or University of Southern California, the classrooms of Harvard, which was Founded as a Christian university. And Princeton founded as a Christian university. Do you really think those classrooms are friendly to the gospel? It's not only that they're not friendly. They're openly, plainly, in an outspoken way, hostile to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If what was printed, what you know, are ABC, NBC, and CBS, are they neutral? About the gospel? If you think so, you haven't been watching ABC or NBC and CBS, even in the last few days. If what is printed in the press and said by the media about Christians were said about African Americans or Indians or Hispanics or feminists, or homosexuals, there would be an uproar from Hollywood to Washington. Several decades ago, a Christian thinker and prophet predicted that there would be abortion clinics in every American city and that those clinics would be defended by the government and by the American Medical Association. Now, he was saying this when abortion was against the law in this country. This is what he was predicting. He said America would kill babies and their mother's wombs by the millions. And he said all of this before abortion was legalized. Many of us thought, no, not here. It happened. Everything he said became true. And our society is moving even faster toward a complete rejection and an overt opposition to Christianity. It becomes more open every day. 
I personally believe, and this is John Sartell, that our culture and government will first censure churches and ministers that call homosexuality and abortion a sin. I believe that there will come a day when the church will be forbidden to speak about the innate sinfulness of man. We believe man's basically sinful. We're born that way. That we have an inclination toward war. Toward selfishness. Toward materialism. The state will say that such teaching causes man to think that wars and crime are inevitable. Third, churches and ministers will be censured who preach that Jesus is the only way of salvation because that is a fiction. People, Jesus is still saying to his disciples, go, I'm sending you as lambs among wolves. So what he said then is just as relative as it was then in this sanctuary this morning, in February of 2018. How do we take the gospel to a hostile world? How do lambs hunt wolves? First, he says, don't be naive. Secondly, he said, your power, your power for the gospel in the world is not in material things. It's not in your clothes. It's not in money. It's not in material wealth. Look at verse 4. He says, do not take purse or bag or sandals. Well, what was Jesus saying? He was saying your power will not rest in your position or what you have materially. I would have thought Jesus would have said, hey, for this experiment in the gospel, for this project, we need lots of money. Get all you can. Money is power. That's not what he said. In fact, he said just the opposite. And we tend to think, and even inside the church, money is power. We tend to think, man, if we had money at Christ Presbyterian Church, if we had more money, just think what we could do in Fayette County. Folks, Start reading history this afternoon, the history of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. Find one time, find one time that there was a great awakening and the root cause of that great awakening was that the church had money. You can't find it because it's not there. No spiritual revival was ever came into fruition because the church was wealthy. Remember when Peter was in the garden with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and the wolves came and Peter, who was supposed to be a lamb, pulls out his sword. And Jesus said, Peter, put up your sword. Those aren't the weapons of our kingdom, my kingdom. That's not what a lamb does. He said, don't you know that I could call, if I wanted, I could call 72,000 angels, these great, huge beings, and any one of them could destroy the Roman Empire, but I could call 72,000 and wipe out everything? He said, I'm not a victim here. I'm in charge. 
It's an evil time, an evil day, and the wolves are reigning this evening. Those are, but those aren't our weapons. The apostle wielded that sword in the garden. Went out in power. The power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And he slew 3,000 people with the sword of God's word. They were supernaturally changed individuals and dwelled by the Holy Spirit. Those are the weapons of lambs. This power is primarily spiritual, or spiritual, and our weapons must be spiritual in nature. Let me ask you a question. Perhaps you've been listening and you said, yes, that's right. Well, let's ask a convicting question that I had to ask myself this week, in the last week, in the last month, in the last year. What kind of deliberate prayers have you prayed for Christ Presbyterian? What kind of deliberate prayers have we prayed for the lost of Fayette County? Are you praying in the Spirit for the power of Jesus Christ to be unleashed through this church? What what kind of time are we giving to those sort of prayers. People, we have weapons that will blow the gates and walls out of Satan's fortresses. Jesus himself said it. He said, we saw it this, this month. Jesus said, on this rock, when they made that confession, you're the Christ of some, on this rock, I will build my church and you can finish it with me and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the onslaught. Do you believe there's something more powerful than a nuclear bomb in the arsenal of Christ? That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. How do you take the gospel to a hostile world? Don't be naive about the world. Peter, John, James, your power for the gospel in the world is not in your clothes, it's not in your money, it's not in your material wealth or in your position. Thirdly, he said, your power for the gospel in the world is not in being popular. Look on verse 4. Maybe you wondered what this meant. And do not greet anyone on the road. It was the Jewish custom to, to as, they, as they went on their journey, as, as they went out. It was, it was their custom, their way to speak to pilgrims, to the other pilgrims. And for pilgrims to go out of their way to be sociable guests. Jesus was saying, don't worry about being popular. I'm sending you out into a hostile world with the gospel. You can't afford to worry about being popular in the world. Your popularity will not make the gospel acceptable. Your popularity will not change wolves into lions. All of us like to be liked. I want to be liked. I want you to like me. I want to be liked in Vic. It's just natural for all. Now, there are some folks. You and I both know folks, I'm sure, that they seem to get up in the morning and say, I'm going, I'm going out today to see how many people I can get to dislike me. They just do it. I don't understand why. But that's not the way most of us are. We want to be liked. 
You know, if, if Christ Presbyterian wants to be popular in the world, I can give you a formula. Lay aside the deity of Christ. Lay aside the miracles of the incarnation and the resurrection. Make Christ echo. Make the Christ of, of, of this church echo whatever the ideas are in popular culture. Whatever popular culture is, just put it in the lips of Jesus. Make Christ one of the many ways to salvation. That's exactly what the churches of our land have been doing for the last hundred years. You want to be popular with culture. Echo what the cultures say. Let me ask you a question. What if that had been the main goal of the first century church? The church that was launched at Pentecost, the church that went out in the Roman Empire. What if their goal had been to be popular inside the Roman Empire? Let me tell you a good story. Dwight L. Moody, Moody maybe I suppose that most of you have heard of him. He was a 19th century evangelist out of Chicago, preached the gospel in a wonderful, wonderful way. But he was uneducated. His grammar was atrocious. But he spoke with great, great conviction and power. He went to England on a three-year mission to preach the gospel in England. He was asked to speak. Now imagine this. He, you know, he was thought of in Europe as being a, a country bumpkin from America. He went to Oxford to speak. And when he was to speak there in the chapel at Oxford, I mean, this is the center of civilization, the center of education. And there's Dwight L. Moody speaking. There were a group, I read about a group of men that went there, students that went there to ridicule him. They were just going to drive him. They were going to drive him from the pulpit unmercifully. One of the men that went to do that spoke of that time. He said Moody got up to speak. He started with these words. Don't think God don't love you, because he did. He said that in Oxford. Not one of his friends stood up in chapel that day. In fact, he said, we were immediately captivated by the power of this man's preaching. The very man that wrote that was converted that day in the Oxford. Educated man listening to Dwight L. Moody. Jesus said, don't be naive about the world. Your power for the gospel in the world is not in your material wealth, not in your money, not in your position, not in material things. Your power for the gospel in the world is not in being popular.
there's more to be said. We're just going to have to come to it next week as uh, we'll finish. How do lambs take, how do lambs hunt wolves? But I want to finish by reading you something written by a Cuban poet and diplomat. His name was Armando Valadares. He wrote a book about his 22 years in a Cuban prison, 22 years in Castro's prisons. After he survived the prison experience, he was later appointed by President Reagan to serve as ambassador to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. But in his book, Valadares spoke about the extreme persecution in Castro's prison. And he includes the description of one particular Christian. Now, these are not my words. They're the words of a poet, the words of a diplomat in prison. And he's watching one of the lambs of Jesus in that prison. And this is what he wrote. All of us called Gerardo the brother of faith. His sermons had a primitive beauty. He himself had an extraordinary magnetism. From a pulpit improvised from old salt codfish boxes covered with a sheet behind a cross, the thundering voice of the brother of faith would preach his daily sermons. We would all sing hymns he wrote out on cigarette packages and passed out to those of us at the meeting. Many times, the soldiers broke up those meetings of prayer with those moments of prayer with blows and kicks, but they never managed to intimidate him. When they took him off to a forced labor field in the Isle of Piftus, he organized Bible readings and choirs. To have a Bible was a subversive act, but he had, we never knew how, a little Bible which he always carried with him. If some exhausted or sick prisoner fell behind in the furrows or hadn't piled up the amount of rock he had been ordered to break, the brother of faith would turn up. He was thin and wiry with incredible stamina for physical labor. He would catch the other man up on his work, save him from brutal beatings. Then, or when one of the guards would walk up behind him and hit him, the brother of faith would spring erect. He would look into the guard's eyes and say, May God forgive you. In the midst of the apocalyptic vision of the most dreadful and horrifying moments in my life, in the midst of the garish orgy of beatings and blood, prisoners beaten to the ground, a man emerged, the skeletal figure of a man wasted by hunger with white hair, blazing blue eyes, and a heart overflowing with love, raising his arms to the invisible heaven and pleading for mercy for his executioners. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. A burst of machine gun fire 
ripping open his breast. I hope you don't think that when you hear Jesus say, I send you out as lambs among wolves. I hope you don't think that is a sign of weakness. I hope you don't think that is a sign of fear. That's not what Jesus was saying. When you're tempted to think, well, that's not manly. Remember the brother of faith. That man was sent by Christ. Gerardo, a lamb among wolves. That is what we are, that's what all of us are in this world. That's what we're called to be. Lambs among wolves. And the best part is, the lambs win. 